Programming Throwdown, episode 108. Kotlin. Take it away, Jason. Hey, everybody. Super excited to do a duo episode. We've done many interview episodes with uh, you know the two of us and, uh, and one or more guests. Um, we've had so many of those, and we have so many really exciting interviews coming in the future. But this was a time where, where you know, we really wanted to do a duo episode and super excited to, uh, to talk about Kotlin. So it's an OG style. Yeah, that's right. It's it's an OG episode. Yeah, hopefully we'll we'll have more time to do these in the future. We are looking at ways that we can be more productive and and get out more episodes. There's definitely, uh, we've had a lot of really exciting requests. Actually, Kotlin uh, Kotlin is a request. So thank you so much for requesting Kotlin. I think it's it's a great suggestion. We've had requests, you know, believe it or not, we've never done ADA. And that really surprised me. So yeah, we had a request for Ada come in recently. We've had a, a whole litany of requests, and, um, and and we do take those super seriously. We love to do them, and this is you know, an opportunity to fulfill one of those. And, and I'm hoping we can do more of our OG shows along with our awesome interviews in the future. So I think if we were like one of those uh, cool YouTube channels, we would claim we got an intern who did all this for us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, we need an intern. Got to come up with an imaginary name for them, and then okay, anyways. Yeah, we should we should definitely have a lot of interns are Sven. For whatever Wait, what? reason, oh. there's uh two of the podcasts I follow have interns named Sven. So that I think that's that's what the intern name has to be. Okay. Fair enough. All right. So if your name is Sven, reach us at programmingthrowdown at <laughs> gmail.com. So yeah, I wanted to to talk a little bit, you know, in our intro topic on on this this thing called the gold standard. Uh yeah, as most people know, I'm really into to economics. Um, I'm not so much into investing and those kind of things. This isn't investment advice um, or anything yeah. like that. But but just the economics and 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 just how you know money was invented and how people exchange things and all of that I think is super super interesting. Uh, we've talked about it on past shows, and and so you know on the on the perimeter of that is this idea called the gold standard, which is really interesting. It's this idea that you could you know that that ev- all the money was backed by gold and you could literally take you know a 100 dollar bill go to a bank or go to like a government institution and they would give you a chunk of gold for it and that that exchange was fixed so in other words like the price of gold didn't change the money like is the gold right and so and so at any time you could go from gold to money and back at a certain amount that was that was fixed and uh, and yeah, I think that that whole thing is is really really interesting, and it really it kind of blows your mind when you think about you know what, what they call now fiat currency, which means that you know the the government kind of forces everyone to use the same type of currency, and just that forcing function is what gives the currency its value. I always thought one of the interesting parts about the like I guess commodity backed. Money was, and I'm, and maybe it's an extreme thing. Is what would have happened if someone would have found like in a giant uh, r- deposit of gold somewhere, or you know, let's talk about like mining an asteroid, and all of a sudden you like 10x the amount of gold available. All of a sudden you would have, you know, now people with fiat always worry about inflation, which is a very real concern. And I don't know if that gets into a little bit of a touchy topic, 
But I mean, I guess like when where America now is, the USA is like, I mean, there was a lot of gold here. And so the amount of gold sort of available in the world went up dramatically. And a lot of the motivation for coming here was people trying to find gold. I always thought it was interesting that in one way, like you point out, $1 equals some amount of gold, call it one ounce, it wasn't. Maybe $100 was an ounce. Sure. You know, some amount, that fixed exchange rate. But in practice, like the amount of gold is always changing and the government doesn't have direct control over the amount of gold in circulation. Yeah, it's wild. I, I also, actually, I'm really glad you brought that up. That was the first thing I thought of too. And this is what I think. And you know, I've talked to you know, a bunch of people about this and, and heard a bunch of different different opinions. But, but my take on it is, you know, yeah, if an asteroid full of gold was to strike the Earth, what would happen is the price of everything else would go down, I think, because there would be a lot more gold. Oh, no, no, sorry. No, the other way around. The price of everything else would go up because there would be a lot more gold. Gold would be less valuable. That's right. And that would make the dollar less valuable and you get so you inflation. Need more dollars to buy everything else. Yeah. And similarly, like, you know, gold is used to make circuit boards. And so, you know, when someone, you know, when the circuit board became a commodity, at that point, the price of everything would go down because people needed the gold for something else uh, that they didn't before. Deflation. Okay. Yeah. So it's kind of wild to think about. It's like, oh, this person invented the circuit board. And that means like the price of milk has to go down. The price of everything has to go down. Yeah. I feel also like governments being able to change money, like is in some ways like good and bad. Like if they were trustworthy, I guess it'd be really good. And the reason for saying they're bad is mostly, at least from my, my reading is if you believe sort of like the people running government can't be at some deep level trusted. And so you don't have a trustless money system if you have fiat currency because the government can just declare what the value of the pay- piece of paper is at any time by printing more or, you know, I guess taking it away. And it isn't always printing. Yep. I guess it can be now just like a database entry in, you know, in big banks or from the treasury or whatever. It doesn't have to actually be the classic, I guess, whatever the meme of the money printer going off. Like it can literally just <laughs> yeah, be like right. a change of a value in a spreadsheet somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah. So, you know, I, I think the gold standard has some serious issues and it's a lot of the the things we talked about that, you know, people would find gold out West and then that would cause prices of everything, all these like nth order effects to happen and prices of everything to go out of whack. Also, you know, the government would, would hedge so that, so they wouldn't actually have enough gold for every dollar in circulation. They would they would actually take risks on on the standard itself, and um, and so then when there was the Great Depression, I think this is actually what killed the gold standard. And and you know, I'm not a history buff, but this is just from reading this one page. You know that there was basically a bank rush for people to to exchange their dollars for gold, and there just wasn't enough gold for for people to to you know do that exchange because the government wasn't really planning on that. And then, and then that caused all sorts of other issues. Oh man, we're going to get into fractional reserve banking and uh, what problems there are with that. This is going to this this is going to go deep. I don't know. I don't think we're ready for this. <laughs> yeah, I think I think maybe we'll put a bookmark in it. But I just thought you know I thought the idea of of the gold standard was really interesting. This idea that and and actually you know when we talked about this you know kind of economic stuff you know, maybe a year or so ago, I had built this little simulation 
And in the simulation, I couldn't really get things to converge in a meaningful way. And um, I actually went back to that simulation. You know, it's awesome that that we have GitHub nowadays and I could just do that. I, I went back to the simulation and I just fixed the price of one thing. And then that made everything everything else so much more stable. And it kind of makes sense. Like, like if you think about it, fiat currency, there's really nothing pre- preventing the government from just multiplying everything by 10 or dividing, decimating everything. And, and so in this simulation, which, you know, was, was, you know, very simple, you know, that, that's basically what happened is things were just wildly out of control, but then like pegging the currency to, to any of the one items caused everything else to become stable. And yeah, and so that that was uh, actually pretty eye opening. And yeah, I mean, we'll have to see what happens with you know our episode one topic, you know, Bitcoin and all of that, and and where all of that goes. I know it's uh, it's going to be a wild ride. I definitely no investment advice, but I'm just curious to see what's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, this conversation is something that with uh, sort of countries the world over trying to understand how to economically stabilize their their economies in the face of every all the fallout from from covid is has been very interesting to see the everybody's different take on whether what they're doing is a good thing a bad thing whether it's ruining the future or whether the future has been saved because of these actions it's it's really hard to know because it takes so long to figure out and in the meantime you get so many other policies that uh, impact what gets decided and what gets done now so you're never doing this, like only change one variable at a time. It's like some very sophisticated running simulation where there are winners and losers, uh, except that it's people's lives and uh, welfare. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's no counterfactuals. It's really hard to run an A-B test. <laughs> Maybe like at the country level you can, but even then. So on to the news uh, to take a hard pivot. <laughs> my, first, my first news item was a little bit ago, the Raspberry Pi, I guess it's the foundation? The Raspberry Pi people, yep. or at least the Raspberry Pi Pico. So most Raspberry Pis before this, which I think there's been, I think they're up to like four, fourth version, and then there's several variants along those, um, yep. have all been about running Linux and being a full sort of, almost like a computer, like a mini computer, right? You They have video output, they have sound output. It's really meant to be a very sophisticated system on a board. A uh, single board computer, I guess, is the... The term you would use. Yeah, I mean, I bought a K KVI, yeah, KVI switch, and uh, I have my Raspberry Pi on my desk, and I switch to it every now and then, and yeah, it's like a full desktop. Oh, KVM, KVM, KVM video monitor. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, so I mean, those Raspberry Pis have always been that. So to me, this was like a very surprise announcement that basically they would be coming out with something more in the realm of what you would traditionally have been talking about as an Arduino, which is. Uh, sort of microcontroller. They are putting an ARM core on their own silicon, which I guess m- maybe people don't know, but you hear about this ARM processor or that ARM processor. So ARM basically sells what well, you can think of, I, I guess, like as a program or an executable that runs on silicon or on an FPGA that executes computer instructions. And so you can buy that yourself and then plug in various modules for what they call peripherals, like doing USB, doing PCIe, doing HDMI, you can buy other pieces of things that go into your, you know, either FPGA or if you're going to make your own chip, your own silicon, they call it an ASIC. And you can buy from ARM a license for one of these cores for running instructions. And you can put it on your own chip with whatever else you want and kind of make your own thing. And that's what Raspberry Pi has done and made these. And they've put a couple cool peripherals 
for sort of in hardware implementing finite state machines that the first people are just now getting their hands on. And I'm very interested to see um, what will happen. But this space is kind of converging because before you had sort of Raspberry Pi for single board computers, Arduino for sort of microcontroller oriented things. But now there's crossover. And I even saw a news article recently where like Arduino is going to make a board that has the Raspberry Pi Pico on it. So oh, nice. And it get very confusing for telling people what to use. But that's pretty cool. And Raspberry Pi and Arduino both have been a huge boon to people doing embedded development, not necessarily like for work or industrial purposes, but for hobbyists especially, because the ability, which I need a formal name for the metric, but basically the ability to type into Google a question about what you're trying to solve and having real good answers come back um, has been very good with Raspberry Pi and Arduino, much better than anything ever before. So the amount of support, the adoption, the amount of uh, users behind it. So if they can do the same thing with the Pico, it could be really like transformative to the hobbyist uh, microcontroller market. Yeah, and the prices have been just absolutely astonishing. Like the Raspberry Pi was something like $30, maybe even $15 at one point. Um, and the Pico is $4 for a <laughs> microcontroller that has like, you know, a pretty good developer interface. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Actually, for, for Halloween, we used uh, an Arduino to make a... Uh, a little Halloween thing that jumped out and 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 kind of scared people when they reached in to get candy, and it was a blast. I think wow. uh, it actually it really scared kids because especially <laughs> at night, you know, because because it was made by hand, which is you know plywood and some hobby wood. You know, no one was expecting it to move, and then when it moved, they didn't really know what was going to happen next because you know it, it obviously wasn't something you just got from Home Depot, right? So it just moved in this really awkward way. And uh, it, it legit scared scared people in the neighborhood. So and and yeah, all that was only possible through a lot of googling, uh, <laughs> buying things on Amazon, and setting things on fire. And, and oh wait, uh, <laughs> yeah, the magic smoke. So yeah, it's this stuff's amazing. I'm glad it's it's reaching more people. Um, my news is Kubernetes dropping Docker shim. So. This is this is a really really interesting story. Um, you know, most people are familiar with Docker. Actually, if we haven't done it, we should probably dedicate a whole show to Docker and, and containers. But, but just a high level, you know, Docker is a way to kind of package up, let's say, installing an OS and then running a bunch of of commands on it. So let's say, imagine you install Ubuntu on a machine and then you install, uh, you know, MongoDB and you configure it. And let's say you need to do that many, many times. You know, you could use write what's called a Docker file to describe that process, and then you can create what's called a container, which is like a virtual operating system that sits on top of something called Container D or Container Daemon. And so the idea is you can kind of take these modules and you can run them uh, in the cloud on your computer, you know, on on a Raspberry Pi, uh, and it's just kind of self-contained like that. So Docker really popularized this. I mean, there was, you know, CH root before, which which did a decent job of this, as long as you're staying kind of in the Unix world. Um, but Docker kind of, you know, brought it to everybody. You can run Docker on Mac, you can run Docker on Windows, you can have a Linux, uh, you know, OS container running on Windows, and it just works. They have, you can actually share folders, so you can, you know, have shared content between your actual OS and the Docker OS, and so on and so forth. But the Docker business story is not as 
like exciting or not as not as not as nice. So, you know, Docker started getting into this thing which they call Docker Swarm, which was, you know, imagine you have a database and a web uh, you know, backend and you have a a load balancer and they're all meant to work together, right? The load balancer points people to one of many web backends and the web backends points to one of many of uh, shards of this database, right? So all of those need to communicate to each other. And if they're all kind of containers, and especially if you're running in the public cloud where the cloud is turning them on and off or migrating them, it's not obvious how you're going to make all of that communication happen. And so Docker Swarm was a way to do that. It was it was a service registry where you would say like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm a database container. And the service registry would say, oh, okay, yeah, I've seen 10 of you before, you're number 11. And then the website would say, oh, I need to connect to the database. Um, you know, Docker uh, Swarm, tell me, you know, where, where my database is. And it will, it, it had a load balancer inside of it, and it would, it would take care of all that for you, right? So, you know, the, the, the interesting thing here is this, this new thing came out called Kubernetes, and it was almost equivalent. And, and I mean, I'm not an expert here, so I'm sure there's features that one has, the other hasn't. But, but in spirit, you know, it's the same as Docker Swarm. And it was just, you know, it's kind of better executed. The documentation was amazing. There was really, really good tutorials. There was this thing called Minikube, which you could run on your local machine for as like a sandbox. And it just had a way, way better developer experience. And it kind of just, kind of eclipsed Docker. And uh, this is really, you know, and, and so Docker Shim was was kind of like, you know, Kubernetes was 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 kind of playing nice with a lot of parts of Docker. And and Docker Shim was a way to kind of make that all happen. And uh, that's getting getting deprecated. So it's kind of the nail in the coffin for for Docker. Now if you're if you're creating a Docker image, a Docker container, that's actually using an open source format. So you can always use Docker to make containers and then run them on, on Kubernetes um, because it's, it's a shared format. But you know, Docker as, let's say, as a business, you know, really kind of got the uh, legs pulled out from under them. And I, and I just thought that was a, it was a little bit sad. Actually, you know, it, it's kind of a little message of warning for, for people who... Uh, who want to start new things that you really have to have something that you can kind of charge for or something that's that's kind of unique otherwise uh yeah it's kind of a kind of a, a tale of warning to folks out there i feel that plays in a little bit which we don't have here but the elastic search thing as well with aws where aws was running yeah. instances of elastic search and so people weren't using elastic searches hosted service anymore and so it's forced elastic search into changing their license structure I mean, I think these things are just really hard. Like, it's really good that people want to do open source, and open source is awesome. But yeah, it's it's a it's a fine balancing game, uh, and it's yeah, really hard yeah, to exactly. know what's going to happen. Um, so, you know, just over actually, the just to, of years. to put a bookmark in this, this actually won't change anything. If you're someone who uses Docker on Kubernetes, unless you use the swarm parts of Docker, like the load balancing, some of the really advanced stuff, or you have some really advanced node configuration that's specific to Docker. You know, most people probably don't even realize this, but but they're actually building these open standard containers that that aren't even really like a Docker 
specific thing anymore when they're done. And so this shouldn't actually affect 90% of people out there. But I just thought it was an interesting story. <laughs> My next news story continues on uh, stuff adjacent to open source, and that is GitHub 1S. So there's a couple of interesting angles from this, but basically it turns out, uh, I guess it was Microsoft added the ability to type 1S to the end of GitHub for any GitHub repository and get a version of Visual Studio Code uh, open in your browser in under a second where um, you can browse the repository as if it was checked out locally with your version, like with VS Code pointed at it. And so you can browse using VS Code Browser. You can look at the code that way and the styling and all of that in your in your web browser. Uh, that's two uses of the word browser. I guess that's confusing. Um, so in your web browser, you can have the file browser of VS Code and the VS Code Whoa, editor look. This is amazing um, for a random GitHub repo. So if you did like yeah, so if you went to GitHub.com/slash/JetBrains/slash/Kotlin because that's what we're talking about today, and in, you would see normally the GitHub interface. You would see like. At the top there, like GitHub, you know, file directory list. And then at the bottom, you would see like a rendering of the readme.md. Instead, if you did GitHub 1s.com slash JetBrain slash Kotlin, you get an instance of VS Code, Microsoft's Visual Studio Code Editor, with the files on the left-hand side and editing view of the readme.md on the right-hand side. And so then you can just browse through. It's just like a super cool use of like, the fact that Visual Studio Code is itself JavaScript that can run in your browser and that GitHub has the APIs that uh, you can hook into and call this way. It also points out how horrible GitHub's file browsing was and how awesome it is to be able to do this. Like it's so much easier to browse random repos this way. Yeah, do you know if you can edit a file and, and create a pull request? I saw some stuff about it, but I didn't look into it because th- that's not sort of the normal thing I, I kind of do. Uh, but I did see that there were some people commenting about doing that workflow. So I think there is a workflow there, but I don't know what it is. And the other thing is, yeah, I feel oh, sorry, I feel like it's only a matter of time. So apparently there's also an internal thing in GitHub that's starting to roll out called Workspaces that's for doing this kind of thing, like basically doing all your editing in the browser, um, in the web browser, but it's not fully rolled out yet. And then also, like, unfortunately, this doesn't work for like internal enterprise instances of GitHub. But one of the things that I found interesting is there's a disclaimer at the bottom, if you do this, go github1s.com slash some repository that says this is not an officially supported thing. But then I realized, wait a second, like maybe it's not from Microsoft, but Visual Studio Code is a Microsoft product. Microsoft bought GitHub. Like I'm not clear uh, what makes it an authorized thing unless it's not being done by Microsoft. So... Oh yeah, that was my that was my impression was that someone just some did this as a hobby and oh, using the maybe public it API. Is. Maybe it's not being done by Microsoft then, but it is a, kind of a cool use of the various technologies and smushing them together in an interesting way, and really does point out that like oh, it is some random person and it's not Microsoft. Okay, that does explain it. Yeah, it's still awesome. Yeah, super cool. Like why we didn't do this before? Why this wasn't like a thing? I have no idea, but. Like for now on, like anytime you end up on a, you know, random public GitHub repo, like just add that one S and enjoy being able to uh, browse it much more conveniently. Yeah, this is amazing. Yeah, I'm going to use this. Yeah, definitely every day. I mean, this is something that we do all the time is look at open source implementations of different stuff. And this is, this is so cool. 
Cool. All right. My uh, show topic, my next show topic is Algorithms for Decision Making, which is a free book that you can download. And you know, you know, a lot of people don't know a lot about decision making. So, so when they think about machine learning, they think about, you know, classifying dogs and cats and, and uh, you know, the house example, like figuring out the price of a house and a lot of these supervised learning things, which are, you know, awesome. They're definitely really powerful. But a lot of people don't have exposure to decision making. And so they might think, well, if I use supervised learning to predict you know, all the outcomes of a decision. And, and then I can just, you know, have a for loop or something and pick the best one. And, and the problem is that doesn't actually work because the algorithms that uh, you're using to forecast are themselves, you know, uh, the data that's driving those forecasts came from some other decision-making system. So, and so there's there's error and there's bias in those. Like for example, um, you know, on YouTube, it could be that the the if you search for you know a certain query, like you search for let's say funny, you know, the top ten videos that come up, people will be more likely to click on those than the eleventh video, which is you know you have to click on next page to get to. And so and so a naive system might say, well, those ten videos are just funnier than the eleventh video, right? But it's it's not taking into account that sort of bias that was induced by the UI, right? So, and, and that's, you know, that's, that's, you know, kind of a one example, but there's many other examples where decision-making is, is really kind of like its own field. And uh, I really thought this book did a good job of, you know, covering the different areas and, uh, you know, kind of going into detail, talking a little bit about kind of theoretical, like, oh, if you have, this really simple example where there's two variables and a decision, and then how can you sort of completely solve that? And then and then getting into like the more practical examples and all the sort of approximations and all the things that you have to do there. But yeah, I thought this was really well written, and uh, definitely you know check it out and uh, and let us know what you think. So I have to make a decision about whether or not to get this. No, I'm just <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, so you should do epsilon greedy. You should flip a coin. And if it's heads, you should read the entire book. And if it's tails, you should you should still read the entire book. <laughs> well, it has a release date of a little bit too. And the guy, one of the authors' names is Wheeler. So I like this. I'm into this. <laughs> All right. It's it's a good start. I have to admit I'm a little bit biased. I mean, this is my area, but uh um uh, but I, I thought it was a really well done book. Time for book of the show. Book of the show. My book of the show is Anti-Fragile. Anti-Fragile is a book, and I actually forgot the author. Is it Nassim Tlaib? I have to look that up. Nassim Tlaib, thank you. And Anti-Fragile is a, is, is a really interesting premise. Um, I have to admit, I didn't read the entire book. The book is actually, um, it's three books in one. And and in the beginning, in the preamble, the uh, Nassim talks about how um, you know, it's three books and the publisher wanted him to release three books and he just released one and so on and so forth. But it's a very, very, very long book. There's a lot of really great content. Um, but, you know, the premise, at least, you know, ostensibly is that, you know, people think of fragile things like, uh, uh, you know, like glass, uh, you know, a glass uh, cup. Uh, you would, you if you had a box full of glass cups, you'd write fragile on it and you would hope that the person you know, shipping your glass cups would, would take some extra care with that, right? And then there are things that are robust. So if you are shipping bricks, 
uh, you would just have a pallet of bricks. You wouldn't you wouldn't write fragile on them. But you know, if if the person operating the forklift was super rough with the bricks, they would shatter, and then you would have loss, and and those bricks you'd have to just throw them away, right? That's robust, right? But he proposes anti-fragile, which actually means that you know, for every brick you break, like you know, another two bricks are formed or something like that, right? And it's a you know, for for that you know, the metaphor doesn't extend in that direction, but but think about your arm, for example. If you break your arm, uh, you know, typically as long as it's you know splinted correctly and everything, your, your arm bone will actually heal and develop stronger. You know, or even even a simpler example is if you just if you lift weights or if you punch a punching bag or something like that. Uh, you, you know, the, if you punch a punching bag, the calcium in your knuckles will actually become more dense. If you lift weights, you know, your muscles will become stronger, so on and so forth. And so. These are things where, as they're sort of injured, they they actually become better. And so, he takes that concept and applies it to you know the financial arena and, and a whole bunch of other areas, and applies it to running a business. You also you know woven into this this anti fragile book is this concept of black swans, which are you know kind of rare but catastrophic events. And and his one of his core thesis is that. If you develop your business in a certain way, or if you develop an economy in a certain way, you'll end up with a lot of small, you know, breaks. So a good example that he used is the restaurant industry, where there's constantly, you know, mom and pop restaurants starting up and shutting down and going out of business and and, and new ones forming. And so there, there's 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 constant fragility, you know, at a at an individual, you know, restaurant level. But all of that life and death allows the overall restaurant industry to be very fragile. And he goes into, you know, why and how that is. Uh, but yeah, I think the book is really interesting. It's, it's, as I said, a lot of content. I think even if you just read the first book, you would get uh, a lot out of it. And it's, it's, it's priced as one book. So it's very reasonable. So for, I, I guess I've, I actually heard Nassim talk about the anti-fragile book in person during a, a talk he was giving when he uh, nice. first released it. But for the, if you really want something kind of interesting, so, so Nassim's background is um, he was a derivatives or is a derivatives trader. So he he works in the finance industry doing options trading and stuff, I believe. And so, yep, that's right. So part of his theses, thesis, whatever. Anyway, part of what he's driving at in these books is like, how would you orient yourself if you were going to, you know, buy options or something or futures? And how would you think about black swan events or having a portfolio, which is anti-fragile? But if you kind of want a, like a trip down, whoa, this is a, a kind of fascinating and hilarious between two sort of high profile figures. Nassim is somewhat, I guess, internet famous for getting into it with Nate Silver, who we've talked about before, who is oh, I didn't even know this. guy of 538. So he was the one who became famous, Nate Silver was, for predicting um, a lot of the um, congressional and presidential races what would that have been two or three times ago? And so 538 is a number of electoral votes that we have for president. Uh, so he runs this blog, 538. He's become pretty famous about this. And he writes books and stuff as well. But they both talk somewhat about, I guess, like you would say, predictions and modeling and how to talk about probabilities. And Nate Silver's book, The Signal, The Signal and the Noise or Signal from the Noise. I don't remember what it's called. Anyway, so they get into I think it's a signal from the noise. Okay. So they get into it on Twitter, um, specifically before the last presidential election, 
about what was the right way to kind of think about or to kind of decide how likely it was that President Trump would be reelected or that President Biden, well, I guess not spoiler alert, but or whether Biden would be <laughs> elected. And so it's kind of funny because Nassim sort of, I don't understand most of the nuance, but uh, his sort of take was like, oh, we should have like a betting market, a future, like a predictions market, and people could place real money. And then you could be able to see like the true, true weight of it versus that's very different than how Nate Silver does his modeling and taking a lot of um, survey data and compositing them into a, a model and trying to understand like what people's preferences are being likely outcomes. And so they get into it about whether or not which one of them has the right approach. And they seem to really not like each other is my takeaway. Wow. Yeah. I had no idea. I, I don't, I don't follow him on, on, on social media. So I didn't know that that's, uh, is he at least polite about it? <laughs> like, is this? I, I can't. You know, it's hard sometimes on Twitter, like, to tell if people are being like pot shotty as like an affectation or like whether they're really like frustrated. So yeah, makes sense. Anyways, it, check it out if you're into that kind of thing. I some other people I know who are more uh, have a background in statistics and are I guess style themselves as statisticians find this hilarious and they're very into it and they get into arguments about it but it all goes over my head yeah yeah i mean maybe the the following like the second and the third book get get really technical i think I, I there's something really appealing about i think the premise and uh yeah i don't know you know i would love to see yeah maybe we'll see i'll, I'll dig up if nate silver has sort of real like like a, a counter argument to uh to this anti-fragile sort of uh you know, like ecosystem that Nassim has set up here. But yeah, I think either way, it's really good to uh, to see sort of this point of view. I thought I thought that was really interesting. I feel like Black Swan and Antifragile have been like somewhat, uh, well, I guess Nate Silver's approach to, but leaving that aside. Anyways, Nassim has been like one of those things where he came out with these ideas and then everyone latched onto them and realized they were really good abstractions. And so you hear it a lot in certain areas. Yeah, yeah, totally. My book of the show is uh, less educational, I guess, <laughs> very much less educational. So this is a fantasy book. This is The Shadow of What Was Lost by James Islington. Uh, it's actually the first of three books, which are all out now, So and finishes the, the trilogy, I guess. So you can be content knowing that it will be finished, unlike some other authors. And so <laughs> this book is about a world where I guess there's like a couple different kinds of what you want to call like magic. And one magic has been kind of deemed as forbidden and is like kind of punished and the other magic is sort of like tolerated but trying to be like constrained and you know a, a kind of a lot has happened in the past and there's a little bit of uh, time travel that takes place and I just thought it was really well done it was like super fun read I was very interested to hear what happened I thought it was really good uh, and then I realized like you should never read reviews about books because I went to like go read the reviews about the book after I read it because I didn't want it to be spoiled and people were like hating on it so I guess books are a little bit of, uh, you know, preference. The people were complaining about stuff that I thought was like legitimate, but it turns out mostly I feel it was like kind of pedantic, like, oh, the characters didn't have strong character development throughout the book. They stayed mostly the same. And it's like, oh, I didn't even pay attention to that. I guess I treat books when I read them a lot, like uh, just TV shows or movies or whatever. I watch them and I enjoy them. And then I kind of move on. I don't find myself thinking deeply about fiction books. Yeah, I think that is the challenge is, is it just in general, people who write reviews you know, are much more technical on really any topic. I mean, same thing with video games. I was, I was looking up a good game for um, you know, my older, my son to play. 
And uh, yeah, when you read the reviews, it gets super technical and it actually wasn't that useful. <laughs> so anyways, I really like the book. I would give it a, a recommendation, not like my, oh, this is the best book ever, but like, oh, this is really good. If you're looking for something to read, it has a fair amount of heft to it. Uh, it's a trilogy that's done and it's a, it's a good world. I would, I would recommend Shadow of What Was Lost by James Islington. Cool. So how do you read, you know, given that you don't have a commute, at least I'm assuming you don't have a commute, like what is, what is the right time for you? Is it, is it when you're going to sleep or, or what do you usually read? That's a great question. I haven't sort of like fixed my post COVID getting books. Like I used to listen to them all on, on audible <laughs> plug. Um, but, but <laughs> I mean, I just, before they even were a sponsor, like we, I just, that's how I always have done it. Yeah. And so this one I actually finished most of like oh, before COVID, but we've not had a lot of uh, book of the shows since then. So um, now I find myself actually struggling. Like it's, I, I don't think I read as much as I want to uh, in part because I don't have the, the commute. And so I haven't found a good replacement strategy yet. Yeah. I'm in the same boat. I, what all I've started doing is trying to read at night, but, but I just fall asleep. <laughs> and so I found, I found the sleep timer in audible to be really oh. useful, but, but even then it's like at most, yeah, that makes it so I don't end up at the end of the book when I wake up, but I still like have to figure out, okay, how much of that 30 minutes did I actually listen to? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think actually, well, yeah, I think paper books might be better now that I spend much more time at my house, but I just got now the habit of buying paper books because I would never read them. So I don't know, maybe I need to try buying some book in paperback or hardback and, and trying it. Yeah. It's, it's a really good, really good point. I, uh, um, yeah, I have found the the audible like or the audio book um, at night thing to work relatively well um, or maybe kind of early in the morning type thing. But uh, but yeah, I definitely, you know, I think once things kind of open back up, then, you know, it, it'll definitely be the the book, the audio book reading will pick back up. Again. <laughs> so, I mean, if you still have a time or are interested in hearing it. <laughs> yeah, with that with that glowing endorsement. <laughs> we do have Audible is a is a sponsor of the the show and you can go to audibletrial.com slash programming throwdown and you can get a, a trial thing, get a book, check it out, see if it works for you. Um, I mean there are still plenty of times to do it if you if you have a yard and do yard work, if you like folding laundry, um, walking the dog, going for your, you know, jog. <laughs> I need to be doing that. Um, you know, those <laughs> kinds of things. I mean, I think those are great times to uh, listen to books on audio and actually encourage yourself to maybe do it a little longer than you might otherwise because you get really into a, a good book. Yeah, yeah, totally. Actually, you know, before winter, when I was mowing the lawn, that actually was probably, you know, during the pandemic, that was the majority of my audible time, I would say, would be would be doing yard work. And then um, ask, why are you out there mowing every other day? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm like, Shh, don't tell the family. <laughs> Grass grows really fast. Yeah. Yeah. Also, you can support us on Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash programming throwdown. You know, we definitely appreciate um everyone's support. Um, you know, we're going to look into getting a Sven intern to uh to join and and we're hoping we can use uh the funds that 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 y'all have uh, contributed to uh, ultimately produce more content. You know, I think we've we've used it in the past to, you know, advertise the show and that's been really successful, you know, and uh, we've been able to, you know, teach, you know, this this whole uh, area and describe what it's like to 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 work in tech to so many more people. And now we're going to pivot a little bit away from ads and the direct outreach and more towards, you know, producing more content and in a way that's that's uh, you know, productive, you know, and efficient for us. So uh, we really appreciate all of your support. 
Yes, thank you to all of our patrons. Yeah, and with that, it is tool of the show. My tool of the show is Sentry. Sentry is a it's it's a bunch of tools, but you can access it from their website. I think it's Sentry.com. But it is a way to collect errors and crashes. And um, I recently integrated um, Eternal Terminal in, with Sentry and, and found it to be really, really useful. Um, so, uh, you know, quick recap, you know, Eternal Terminal, it's this SSH-like program. And um, it's been getting really, really popular, which is, which, is, which is super, super fun. But it also means that there's all sorts of esoteric errors and there's there's all sorts of other crashes I don't even know about that are happening, and so I I wanted to find a way to, you know, to collect to collect crashes and these other things, and uh, you know I tried a bunch of different alternatives. Um, there are you know at a low level there are some pretty standard things. There's like BrakePad and CrashPad, and on Mac there's Crash Reporter, right? But I really wanted something that was higher level that I where I wasn't going to have to write so many bits and pieces. And after trying a few things, Sentry was by far the best. The way it works is, you know, in this case, it's a native C++ app. So I was using the Sentry native library. But you, you know, you link this, the Sentry native library into your code. Um, they have a relatively simple API. In my case, when Eternal Terminal starts, it uh, looks for a config file. If it doesn't see it, it creates it and it puts a little UUID in there, a unique identifier. And then it'll use that identifier to dedupe. So if you crash, you know, a hundred times, it won't generate, you know, a hundred hundred different reports on the back end. And then there was, you know, just some hooks into like the signaling system for Unix and Windows and all of that. So that when there's any type of crash or anything, it just ships the log off. But yeah, it works great. So you, so I went. So there's a Sentry dashboard, and I can see in the past 24 hours. Um, you know, all the crash crash messages, and then I can go back in the code and and try and decipher what happened, and it gives stack traces and everything. So, um, yeah, I thought it was pretty. It was a pretty pretty cool uh, system, and I recommend it. Um, I haven't actually paid for anything yet, but I've, this is in master eternal terminal master. I haven't done it in a release yet, and and even on master, I'm hitting the five thousand event limit. So. So I'll probably switch to the paid version before I actually cut a new release. And, and I've been happy enough with it that uh, it's already provided really good value for me. Nice. Uh, it looks like it's Sentry.io. Oh, yeah. Cool. Thanks for the correction. And Sentry-like monitoring, not Sentry-like 100 years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sentry. But yeah, check it out in the show notes. We'll put a link to it that's accurate and everything. It's It's really cool. It also, I think they do like browser and stuff. I mean, I, I wasn't building a website, so I don't know for sure. But um, but yeah, I mean, they also support a ton of other languages. So if you're doing Python or Node.js or whatever, they have bindings for all of that. My tool of the show is, uh, for once, not a game, an actual <laughs> tool, and that is Ninja, uh, which is ninja-build.org. Um, Ninja is, I guess you is just like a replacement for make. Yep. So if you are building C++ or C projects, you're very familiar with Make. Make itself invokes the compiler, um, but it is itself monitors dependencies and determines what and when things need to be rebuilt. Um, but Make makes is quite uh, legacy at this point, I guess you would say. Like it's been around for a long time, still works, and a lot of people, you know, kind of are very into it. 
but it's not always, in my opinion, the fastest or the best yep. at uh, figuring out when and what needs to be rebuilt. So it often overbuilds things or is slow to figure it out, especially on bigger projects, which I happen to be be working on presently. And so Ninja was suggested and I tried it and it handles things like understanding you have multi-cores and so doing in make it would be the dash J option for running multiple jobs in parallel. It's really quick at um, figuring out the dependency graph and what needs to be built. Um, so if you're building everything, I don't think you would see much difference between make and Ninja to be honest, but maybe. Um, but if you're doing partial builds, Ninja is definitely noticeably faster and pretty easy. And best of all, I don't actually never written a Ninja config file. What happens is since I use CMake on, on my project, um, we normally would use CMake, which outputs make files for you. So that's kind of confusing to me anyways, but you have a CMake file, CMake makes the make files and then make invokes the compiler um, and the linker. Yep. So in this case, you tell CMake you want Ninja files and then you run the Ninja command and Ninja invokes the compiler and the linker for you. And it has very, like, I, I, it's not much time to transition over. I've not need to fidget with it, so I can't, you know, say much about the configurability of it. But I found it to be, like, pretty efficient. And everybody that on our team who has tried it uh, has ended up pretty much just switching to it. Uh, and it's pretty no-nonsense and uh, has a pretty nice output. So it looks, it looks good, and it runs on in parallel by default. And it's really easy to build only specific binaries if your project builds multiple binaries. So if you've not tried it out before, and especially if you're using CMake, it's as easy as just passing, I believe it's the dash, uh, no, I don't know. Dash uh, G. Is it dash G? Dash G yep. Ninja with a capital N. Um, and so if you're using CMake, definitely uh, try having it output Ninja and check it out. Yeah, Ninja is amazing. I highly, highly recommend everyone switch to Ninja. Yeah, the, you know, the interesting thing about make is if you do make dash J, but you don't provide a number, it just blows up your computer basically <laughs> like yeah so make dash j with no number sets it yes. to infinity no oh, yeah so so if you have to build let's say 300 files it will spin up 300 processes right then and there and try and build everything at once so i guess if you have a small project that's fine but if you have a big project yeah that seems bad yeah i mean you know even eternal turtle is not even that big and uh Actually, the thing that got me to switch to Ninja was was that I did make dash J. I was in a hurry and I meant to do make dash J four. And I just, I, I forgot I didn't get the four in time and I had to restart oh, my computer. No. <laughs> and I was just like, this is so this is so dumb. Uh, there's one thing actually. Um you know, the, the reason why I hadn't been using Ninja is is having to pass the dash G to CMake all the time. But I found there is a CMake config you can set oh. somewhere in your home directory. And if you do that, it will always run Ninja by default. I guess I always tailor my build anyway. So I always have other flags to pass in, like dash D flags for defining like how I want the build configured. So passing one more. Oh, uh, makes sense. Because I just go into my history and edit my last run. So yeah. But yeah, that's yep. good to know. I didn't know you could put in defaults into the CMake cool. Yeah, totally. Yeah, Ninja is great. Everyone should, should definitely jump on that if you're using Make. Where everyone is a small subset of people that are building C and C plus plus and listening to the show and have a CMake front end. I would say that's maybe eight thousand people or something. I don't know, maybe ten thousand. We need a poll. All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you're using CMake, um, let us know. Um, actually, if you if you switch to Ninja and like it, definitely let us know. Cool. On to Kotlin. So so, so oh yeah, go ahead. So I, the first time I heard about Kotlin was in the context of um, people saying you could now develop Android apps. And I hadn't heard much about it before. 
But I was interested to learn that it, I, I assumed it was made by, you know, I guess it would have been Sun slash Cisco as an extension of Java because it got picked up by Google for doing Android stuff. Um, but I was surprised to learn that Kotlin actually came out of the JetBrains team, which are the people who make IntelliJ, CLion, um, and a number of, I, is it Py, one of the Python tools, which Python tool is it? Uh, is it, I was going to say PyCharm, but I don't think that's correct. No, yeah, I know what you're talking about, though. Is it MyPy? Oh, maybe? man, I failed. No. <laughs> uh, anyway, so they make a lot of develop. Yeah, it is PyCharm. They make PyCharm. Cool. Obviously. Oh, they do. Okay. Yeah. And so they make a lot of tools that a lot of people have heard of. Um, so if you're not just using, I mean, I guess if you're a power user and you're using Emacs or, or VI, you know, more power to you. If you're using an IDE, <laughs> it's likely you've run across uh, one of the JetBrains. And if you haven't, I encourage you to try it out. They're not, um, there's often free versions, but they're not always free. But if you work for a company, uh, most of the time, most people's company will pay for uh, using the tools. And I would say JetBrains tooling is really good. And they were the ones who actually uh, started Kotlin and then open sourced it. Yeah, I was really shocked to learn that um, almost uh, half the people using Kotlin are not writing Android apps. They're doing oh, a lot wow. of web backend. And, and yeah, that was super, super surprising to me. I yeah, I mean... I, I uh, I'll have to really dive into that. I mean, I, I you know actually you know I could see the rationale because if you already have a web front end in Java, you know that's definitely the easiest migration to make or a web backend rather. But yeah, so yeah, I think you know another thing that that made Kotlin really really popular was was this whole uh, drama around Java, the Java APIs. Um, so this and and. Uh, Actually, Patrick, I don't know. You might know a lot more about this than I do, but but um, you know, ostensibly there was there was this issue where I think like Oracle kind of owned Java, but but you can't really own a programming language. You can only own, I guess, certain APIs, and um, and uh, there's this whole back and forth between Oracle and Google, who who are the people who make Android, and uh, I just feel like Kotlin was probably part of that whole. I mean, Kotlin is definitely. I think better for Android development, but I think part of it too is sort of strategic. Yeah, I mean that whole thing is still, I think, still in in the court. But I I feel like I don't want to address it without prepping myself, even though I feel like I know what the uh, situation is because it it becomes pretty pretty subtle. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, but you know, I I think that that you know, Colin has a lot of really nice features, so. You know, for one thing, if you're building a front end, and this is a, you know my personal take, if you're building a front end, that tends to be the place where you really need type inference. You know, because you're doing you're dealing with a lot of callbacks, and so things can get and, and like type inference, lambda functions, these things become most important, at least for me in the front end. And like like for example, like eternal terminal doesn't really need. Uh, you know, async or anything like that because it it just does one thing, right? But but on the front end, you know, you have all these different buttons and switches, and everything kind of needs to be asynchronous. And so and so that's where you know these kind of language properties really shine. And Kotlin's very good at that. You know, being a JVM language, it's fully compatible with you know Closure, Script, and uh, which we've talked about on past shows, and and obviously Java and Scala and all those other languages, which is which is really nice. But another really cool feature about Kotlin is it also interops with Objective-C and Swift. So it's entirely possible for you to, to have like a Android app in Kotlin, 
And then let's say you feel compelled to write the iOS, an iOS app, uh, iOS version of the same app, you could at least move a lot of the business logic over. And then you would write using the interop, you would write, you know, the, the, the front end um, in Swift, let's say, but, but all of your business logic that sits on the, on the phone could, could be shared uh, between Android and iOS, which is really appealing. Actually reading through Kotlin and having done some Swift, I found like it actually feels almost like they are ta- targeting the same trade-offs. So if they feel very similar to me, um, obviously Swift wasn't meant to be like a, a JVM based language, even though I believe that now Kotlin also can um, be a front end to LLVM. And so yep. uh, you can can build it without the JVM. But um, Swift and Kotlin, like the syntax itself is different, like the operators you use and, and the words, but the way like how constant versus non-constant variables are done, how that stuff is strongly typed, but if the type can be easily inferred, you don't have to write it. These kinds of things feel very similar between the two to me. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, one thing that that Kotlin that I wanted to call out about Kotlin is is they they borrowed the data class idea from Python, which I really like. There was a period of time where like I would basically use protobuf on everything um, that I built, even if I didn't need it. And the reason is because the code that protobuf generated was so convenient. Like I could take any C++ class, I could turn it into a string, I could turn it back into a class. I could compare things. I didn't have to write any of the comparators, right? And 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 at least the way I think when I program is is I have sort of some classes that are just holding data, and then I have other classes that are you know kind of procedures and processes. And so you know I'll typically have like a you know like a like like a widget you know a widget class that has a whole bunch of different properties, and then I'll have like a widget runner class. That uh, you know is, is empty in terms of storage, but just has a lot of logic, and and then the widget class, like you have to end up implementing the hash function, the comparator function, all these things, right? So, um, you know, with Python, and, and I don't know who who kind of came up with this first, so uh, I could the arrow of causality could go in the other direction, but with Python, you have this this awesome import called data class, and you can annotate a class as a data class, and you could choose for it to be frozen or not frozen. And so then what happens is if I have a data class, let's say called point, which has an X and a Y for the coordinates, I can, I can create this sort of point class. I could print it and it'll just print X colon Y colon automatically without me having to write that. I could serialize a bunch of points to disk and then get them back. It's just, it's just a really nice kind of setup. And if I choose to make a frozen data class, then, you know, I can't actually change, let's say, the x coordinate. So I can't do, you know, my point dot x, you know, plus plus. I can't. That that's illegal, right? But because it's frozen, you know, and you have to make a new point anytime you change something, it's immutable. Then there's other sort of optimizations they can do that are really attractive, right? Like you could put it into a, you could use it as a key in a dictionary, for example. And uh, and and Kotlin takes this data class idea. Uh, and, and brings it over, which I think is makes development a lot easier. That's pretty cool. I I, know, I did not know about this data class in Python, so that's that's a that's a valuable tip right there. They do have something similar in Java. They have a couple different ones. I know one of them is called like Lombok, 
which is like it integrates with your sort of ID and build system and you produce, it's kind of like what you're saying, I guess, like simplified class descriptions that get transpiled into like all the boilerplate code. So like standard Java, you're not supposed to like directly access the variables. You're supposed to have getters and setters for everything. Like that's kind of accepted. Mm -hmm. And writing those out is super tedious. And like you said, the hashes and the two string. So instead they allow you to write like a very simple description and say that you want all those things to be generated and then it'll just auto-generate it for you. Nice. So is there like in C++, is there an equivalent for this? What is that called? It's that no, but kind of yes. Um, it's, oh, I think it's, hang on, I want to check. I think it's, is there Marshmallow? So the is, no, there's a way to do it with macros. Yeah, I, say, I think there's marsh, Marshmallow is a, is a thing that also exists in Python, but but I think Marshmallow originated from C++, and that might be one way to do it. Uh, so I think the way, if you're going to do something like this in C++, but I is generally found, it's called X macro. I was thinking Xargs, and I knew Xargs was wrong. <laughs> X macro. Um, but all it is is uh, sort of including, but you can kind of do the same thing, but it's all with preprocessor macros, which if you've used C or C++ before, I mean, using a lot of macros can get you into trouble uh, and yep. make sure... Yep pretty hard to read so i definitely wouldn't recommend doing it but that's the main way i've seen it be done um at like a code level obviously like you're you're saying jason like a lot of people use sort of protobuf or something similar to that like another idl um kind of like yeah. description of, of data description language which is an external tool and it doesn't really integrate at a code level the same way yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think protobuf would be would be the way to go. I think, as you said, you know, it's so frustrating when you you know like control click on a class member variable and it takes you to like a pound define that that you know is unrolling twenty different ways and you you have to go and chase it down. Cool. So yeah, I think uh, you know just some you know since Kotlin, you know Kotlin wait Kotlin is used Kotlin. for for Android development and mobile development. It's good to talk a little bit about developing for mobile. Actually, have you ever? I've built some some apps in the past. None of them were were super popular, but but you know, definitely not an app building expert. But uh, a few things that I kind of learned along the way. You know, the biggest one was not to block the main thread. Um, so it's it's very tempting to write in this procedural way. It's like, you know, okay, I click the button. Now I have a whole bunch of logic to do. I want to go to a database. And when I get the result from the database, I want to show it on the screen. But that ends up creating this really bad experience. And you've probably seen this. Um, I think iOS actually won't let you do this. So it's it's like it won't, like the language, like Objective-C will, will somehow just not let you do it. But on Android, you've, you can see this where you know, even if you have a really high-end phone, if the app is not written in a good way, like it can kind of stutter or the app can freeze while it's doing some logic. That's true, not even just on mobile. I mean, that's true even on the desktop. Like in general, you don't want to do that. Yep. Yeah, totally. And so and so Kotlin makes this easy by um, you know, introducing coroutines. So, you know, typically you would uh, you know, before before Kotlin, like if you're doing this in Java, for example, um, you know, you'd have to have a bunch of threads, right? And you'd have to have a thread pool and you'd have to say, well, you know, the person clicked on the button. So, um, you know, go to my thread pool and, and, and spin up this, this thread that, you know, does some sort of logic. And it ends up being a lot of boilerplate. 
um, you know, with coroutines, coroutines are, are at a high level. You could think of it as, you know, kind of like a thread pool, but it's built into the language at a, at a, you know, pretty fundamental level. So it's kind of like a first class citizen. And so instead of like you maintaining your own thread pool, um, you could just say, Hey, you know, do this thing asynchronously. And, and the, the, the language itself handles, you know, doing that and queuing if too many of them are created and all of that. Having the IDE support for doing uh, mobile development, like the little little bit I've done, <clears throat> mostly just doing tutorials, seems like something that I kind of I almost envy. Like do, coming from a background of developing like mostly command line utilities and stuff, uh, seeing something like Android Studio and its support for Kotlin and having the backend and like out of the box doing just the amazing like auto completions and suggestions and the usefulness. Is, is something that Kotlin comes with and being actually, I believe it's kind of like the recommended way now to build Android apps. Like they don't yep. even like you just go to their webpage and you, you know, kind of follow the default, like make your first Android app. It will have you develop it in Kotlin with Android studio. Yeah, totally. You know, a lot of these IDEs have these, you know, rad tools, rapid application development. And, and basically what that is, is it's a, it's a fancy way of saying it's like a, um, a little editor where you can kind of drag and drop buttons and drop down lists and combo boxes and all of these things. And you can actually get a lot done in the editor. And then typically the editor has this like two-way is bi-directional mapping to either the source code or some kind of um, you know, XML or JSON file. And so, for example, if you're doing Qt on desktop, you can use Qt Creator and it will create this .ui file and and that .ui file kind of explains the layout, you know, of of your of your you know your application, and then you just have to sort of plug into all the buttons, and so you don't have to encode, right? You know, draw a button and put it over here. You like you don't have to do that um, by hand. You could just use the editor, and so you know, for mobile, this is this is really really important because you know a lot of what you're going to be doing on mobile is 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 on the design side, and so. You know, having a, a rad tool like that is is extremely useful and makes you much much more productive. And also, you know, it, it'll kind of force you to separate the you know layout and the and the visual you know design from the the business logic. It'll kind of force you to do that, which is a really good you know healthy practice to have. I mean, the other thing that the the tooling like that, I guess, is like now. It, well, I guess it used to be the big thing like. On iOS, you had very few form factors, and on Android, you had tons. But now everyone just seems like they've given up and gone to, was, is it called like adaptive UI or whatever? Like UI basically so, yeah. like flowing and changing based on like, you know, kind of smoothly across a range of resolutions and sizes. And I feel like doing that stuff by hand becomes like very difficult. <laughs> and having the these tools, although some people kind of want that pixel perfect layout, and sometimes it's still supported, but using these tools in general, especially for new people and making sure it's going to work across the right range of assumptions. Um, these tools are uh, vital to be able to help you do that. Yep. Yep. Yeah, totally. I think, um, you know, some more mobile development stuff is kind of interesting is, is, um, you have to deal with signing your app. So a lot of these apps, you know, when someone goes to get your app from either the app store, or maybe they download it from a website, they download the APK file. Um, you know, they want to make sure that no one has really tampered with it. And so these IDEs are really good at, at handling all of that. They'll, they'll integrate with ProGuard. ProGuard is this tool which 
kind of prevents people from from decompiling your app and then uh, you know kind of taking away your source code and all of that, um, extracting the source code out of it. Um, and so you know there's a whole bunch that goes into you know deploying an app that you really don't think about when you're building um, something, let's say as uh, when you're building a website or something. And and so and so the IDE does a really good job of handling a lot of that versus the web where, you know, on the web like you have to go get Webpack, and and run it and figure out how that works and everything. And and you know there are frameworks like Next.js which we talked about you know with Guillermo Rauch on a on a past episode which which will you know do a lot of that for you. Um, but here I think a lot of that the, the IDE just makes that even even more easier where you can just kind of click a button and all these things happen in the background. Kind of off of the developing for mobile, but one of the things that came up recently at, at work that that I saw, you know, sort of Colin Colin has a way of, of dealing with was talking about optionals. And I was talking before about similarity to to Swift, but in in Colin, like by default, your um, variables can't be set to null, and if you um, want them to be set to null, then you need to declare them as nullable, which is analogous to the optional. Um, just a kind of different way of saying it. And yep. if you have a type which you you're dealing with a variable which is nullable, you need you're you're basically Kotlin forces you to handle it. So you either have to say I'm choosing to ignore it, which is bad, don't do that, or you have to say basically what the behavior should be normally and what the behavior should be if it's currently null. And Swift has something similar for optionals, which is you know if the optional is not there, it's missing then that's a specifically handled case versus if it's there and is set to some value. And I feel we were talking about this, you know, coming up at work and talking about how like this flow um, being preferable to kind of previously people might have done something similar with like kind of uh, throwing exceptions in Java, right? You might throw an exception that, oh, I couldn't, I couldn't parse this into tokens. This string couldn't be parsed into tokens, throw an exception. And that for control flow was considered acceptable. But now you might, um, I guess more the style or the current more preferred way would be maybe you return a whatever container of tokens, but that container is wrapped in an optional or in this case, sort of nullable. And then if you know that the person is forced to handle the case where the thing itself is missing, not just like, so you can get no tokens, you can get some set of tokens or you can get this state where it says basically like I failed to do, I failed to fulfill what you asked me to do. Uh, and then people can take applicable handling and it's expressed in the type directly because it, it's wrapped around with this either nullable or wrapped as an optional. And uh, we were just talking about how like that's become um, more popular. I think it comes out of kind of like the functional programming world. Um, this is super, super common, but it's it's gained a lot of traction to the point where I feel like it's almost become like the recommend, recommended way. And, I, and seeing Kotlin here is, uh, you know, I guess like a decade old, but, you know, more recently developed language has a direct support for this flow. And I feel like that's just a really good thing. Like, I kind of wish I had that in C++, like a, a way to force me to handle this this way for things which could be null. And the language sort of supported it sort of nicely and directly because I feel it's a good design uh, direction personally often. Yeah, yeah, totally makes sense. Yeah, I was noticing this as I was going through, um, you know, and integrating the Turtle terminal with Sentry. One of the things that I noticed was that, you know, if I caught an error, but, but it was actually like a fatal error, I just caught it somewhere else and then ended up, you know, rethrowing it or it caused problems downstream. 
those were actually the hardest to learn anything from. Like it was the hardest to really instrument because because you know it's like you don't really know what went wrong. Like the easiest things to instrument instrument are the ones where you just die instantly. Like you say, like this, something really bad happened. I'm out, and here's the stack trace. Like those are the best. But you know, not not every error kind of fits into that category. As you said, like there might be this time where you're tokenizing something, and if if uh, the tokens aren't correct, you just want to return null, and there's a way to handle it that isn't so dramatic, right? And and a lot of those, you know, I used to just throw and then catch somewhere else, and that became really difficult to diagnose because because it's very hard to actually know where, where it's going to get caught. But if you instead go this route of of returning null, then then um, you know, you might have to handle it in more places. But the trade off is you end up with a clean flow, and when when let's say if one of those places just can't deal with that null and it has to crash the whole app, like that's actually where the problem is, not those other places that just handled the null just fine, right? So so yeah, actually you mentioned this in an earlier episode, Patrick, about how. There's a certain style. I don't know if you follow it or if you were at a place that followed it where they they just don't throw anything. They, they just don't throw exceptions. Yeah, um, this came fine. Being in C that's sort of the recommended way. I, I was pointing out, someone brought this up about literally a few days ago, and I was saying, you know, I, as far as I know, I haven't seen a lot of sort of high level C people, professionals sort of recommend use of throwing and catching in C. It's just generally either inefficient or just hasn't been rolled out. Like it's just not an accepted way of doing things. So yeah, we actually don't allow throwing in our code. Yeah. I think it's a way to go. I mean, in hindsight, you know, and, and, and the nice thing there too is, you know, occasionally the, the language will throw an exception, you know, like you do a equals zero B equals C divided by a boom exception. Right. And, and if you don't catch those, the default behavior, um, you, you can catch the signal you can intercept that signal and then and then you will get a stack trace and a whole bunch of really useful information. So so like not catching the exception, you know, can result in in some really detailed information that could be actually a lot more useful than catching the exception and then exiting. And and then now you end up with uh, you know, not the right information. And it becomes very hard to fix. Yeah, I think I'm not doing active Java development anymore, but it feels like in Java it used to be more common to have, I guess they call it checked exceptions where if your function knew it would throw an exception, people would need to handle it um, and potentially pass it up. I feel now the style is more to do a runtime exception where you extend, you inherit from runtime exception, and then people aren't forced to catch it. So um, like you're saying, if yep. your OS signals, that's a runtime exception, like it's not a compiled time. You, you, don't, you never know what could cause your OS to throw an exception because you could just be kill dash nined from something else, right? So you never know what'll actually I don't know if that makes anyways, separate topic. You yeah, never know what'll signal, you. not an exception, but but I think you're you have the right spirit. Yeah. So so you never know what could just like flake out runtime. Similarly, if you get into some state that you know is is not handleable, you can sort of throw an exception. If people know better than you when you wrote the code and say, Oh, actually, like I know what causes this and I want to handle it, they can still catch it. But otherwise, like Jason is saying, it, it passes all the way up and contains the stack information. Yeah. So let me think other stuff. I mean, we've covered most of it. Um, you know, in 2018, Kotlin was the fastest growing language. So I think um, it shows that 
there was a clear demand for something else for Android. So you know, before 2018, so so I think before 2017, there was almost no Kotlin on Android. I don't know if it wasn't supported or just you know it hadn't been popularized. And so you know, in the past, uh, I think well, in the two or three years between 2017 and around 2019, 2020, um, you know, Kotlin went from 100% backend to 50-50 backend mobile as a language. So that's that's huge, huge growth. And uh, and you know, as I said, I think that's because. You know, Java is, is, is a pretty difficult language to be building a front end and Kotlin kind of addressed a lot of those really deep concerns. And so, you know, if you are looking to do Android development, definitely, definitely, even if you're experienced in Java, you know, take the time to learn Kotlin. I think it would be really useful. It feels good to be back on a normal non-interview. I like the interviews, but I like this too. Yeah, this is great. Yeah, I know a lot of people have have, have emailed us, you know, asking I mean, a lot of people love the episodes too. I mean, it's, it's pretty much a toss-up. But but um, you know, as the show's grown, we do have a lot of folks interview uh, emailing us asking for uh, you know more of the natural episodes and, and specifically, you know, they have a lot of languages they want us to cover that we haven't they got just to yet. Sweet, sweet tool of the shows. <laughs> yeah, the tools of the show are awesome. Um, actually, I was going to use VC Package. And I found out we made that a tool of the show way back in April, and now VC Package is really taking off which is which is amazing um so i think i think we we definitely called that one early but yeah so so it's it's really great to be back and uh yeah we're gonna find out a way to uh to do these these type of shows more often thank everyone again for their thank you all for your support um check us out on discord there's actually a really several really good threads going on discord you know there there was the questions uh, chat room, which we which we used to answer Q and A uh, last month, and um, uh, you know that is just you know continuing. There's there's discussions offshooting from that, um, and then the the on topic, which is the main room, has has a lot of good content. So so check us out on Discord. You know if you if you have questions for us and you add us, we try our best to to answer just about anything, and uh, also talk to the other folks on Discord. There's a lot of really really talented people on there. Music by Eric Barnmeller. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide an attribution to uh, Patrick and I and share alike in kind. <laughs>